All right, so we are going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, first, we need to pray. Father, we are grateful and thankful for your word. Thank you for bringing us here to gather around your word, to hear what you have revealed to us about yourself. We ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear it, hearts that are willing to receive it and to love the truth of your word. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All righty. Predestination and foreknowledge. So there are several streams of thought. Uh, and keep in mind the passage that we went through, the golden chain of redemption, Romans 8. Keep, keep that in mind because we'll be reflecting upon it. That'll be mainly uh, where we're drawing from. Many others, but just keep that in mind. Uh, there are several streams of thought that attempt to explain predestination and God's foreknowledge and how they relate to the human will and salvation. Does anybody know... I gave four. There could be others, but I have four. Does anybody um, know what any of them are? The first one I have starts with M. And we're thinking about God's foreknowledge and predestination. First one is Molinism. Who can, just for fun, who can summarize, other than Aaron, who can summarize what Molinism is? Molinism, okay, Aaron, you want to go ahead? could say that um, uh, it's often referred to as middle knowledge god has some um, middle knowledge of of things that could or could not happen um, and an accurate summary of molinism is that there is somewhere somehow some way some cosmic card dealer and god is doing the best he can with the cards that he's been dealt this is what molinism supposes uh another one no it's the second one i have starts with an o Um, by in your day-to-day life, maybe lacking certainty in God's providence or his provision for sustaining us in any way. What it, some, yeah, some level of faithlessness in God. He's, he's doing the best he can. 
Hopefully he's going to pull through this one on me for me, right? Right. In Molinism, God is not sovereign or omniscient. The second one starts with an O. It's two words. Open theism. Who can summarize open theism? God doesn't know everything. Uh, he knows. He, he can make educated guesses. He can, he can predict to, to a certain extent. Uh, he can use prophets to prophesy events that he can calculate should happen. Um, but he is learning. He's basically rolling with the punches. He's reacting to what happens through our actions. Uh, now, we're not going to spend any more time on those. I won't reference them anymore because uh, for our purposes in, in this lesson, it is irrelevant. These are so far outside of orthodoxy, it's, it doesn't even make any difference to us today. Um, the third one. The third one is the most common perspective on God's foreknowledge and predestination. Starts with a P. It is the prescient view or simple foreknowledge. Simple foreknowledge, you probably hear it said as simple foreknowledge most commonly, uh, but it is called the prescient view. This, uh, who, who can summarize the prescient view? Oh, sorry. He looks down the corridors of time. He is just looking into the future. And then our perspective, the least common perspective, the Augustinian or Calvinistic view. So we'll focus on those two because those are, well, one is ours and the other one is what you're going to encounter most often. Simple foreknowledge. God looks down the corridors of time and chooses to save those whom he foresees will use their free will to choose to believe in him. Um, this is what most American evangelical Christians adhere to. And we've touched on it, I believe, in a previous lesson. Um, but you, your, your Roman Catholics will hold this view. Um, Nazarenes, as, as Charlie mentioned a minute ago. Uh, non-denominational denominations, and so on and so forth. Um, there are problems, obvious problems with simple foreknowledge. I think I only listed two, but I can't remember. Yep, the Armenian perspective, yeah. Arminianism, uh, say that one more time, I'm sorry. Well, Arminian, Arminianism would, would uh, be the umbrella term for multiple different aspects of theology, but the prescient view is specifically uh, identifying the 
the foreknowledge and predestination subject. Problems. Anybody see a problem? Let's go back to this definition. Anybody see a problem? We already mentioned one of them it, uh, last week, I believe. It is man-centered. That's definitely a problem. I didn't. I didn't put one of those down. Um, it's not in the Bible. That's the biggest problem. First of all, it's not there. Uh, when we when we read Romans chapter eight, it does not read, and those whom God foreknew would believe in Him, He also predestined. It does not read that. It goes straight from two verb. It goes from verb to verb. He foreknew and predestined. There is no passage in Scripture where you see this concept. Period. It does. It's not there. If I'm wrong, please show me. So that's the biggest problem. The second problem is election becomes an illusion at this point. If, if this is true, God's election no longer exists. What you are left with is God's affirmation. God is simply affirming what man has elected on his own to do. So you can take the concept of election, which is explicit in Scripture, and just rip it right out and get rid of it, if this is true. So, obviously, uh, we do not want to do this, believe this. The Augustinian or Calvinistic view uh, is based entirely on God's free will and according to his purposes. He chooses who will believe in him to pray to the praise of his glorious grace. So our position, the Calvinistic position, is that um, God's foreknowledge and predestination are based entirely on his purposes and his will and his choosing before the foundation of the world. Problems with this view. What are the problems with this view? Right. Augustinian can be sometimes hard to pronounce. The tension for that, yeah. It, that can be a problem. Yes. Right. So it, it feels like we're getting rid of our choices in time and space feels that way it can feel that way you guys took this this uh slide more seriously than i did uh the problems i found was that it is absolutely 100 percent biblical so that is a problem to only certain people uh not to us it is biblical completely the other problem i came up with is that it is totally god-centered again not a problem for us but it is a problem for some people um, who, who have a soteriology that puts man at the center. It's very uncomfortable for certain people. But yes, 
good answers, better than mine. Okay. It's time to... All right, fine. Let's not do that. It's time to learn Greek with Justin, guys. Maybe if we had theme music and Eric could just hit the button, you know, and all of a sudden it's like... Okay, no. Let's not do that. It's not, it's not necessary. All right. So we got a Greek word. Yes, this is, this is more than two syllables or two letters. Apoyowoko. Pierogi. No. This, this, remember, keep in mind Romans 8, 29. This Greek word is transliterate, transliterated as prognosko. Is the word for foreknowledge, to foreknow, foreknew. Well, hold your horses there, guy. <laughs> prognosko. It, yeah, transliterated. Yeah, right. It is the the English letters correspond most clearly to to those in Greek. So yeah. So prognosko is a compound word made up of the Greek preposition pro, meaning beforehand, and gnosko meaning to know in an intimate way. However, it should be noted that gnosko can also mean to know in a general way, just general knowledge. But we determined last week that this foreknowing needs to be determined, the definition needs to be determined by the context. And we determined that the group of people in the golden chain of redemption were a very particular group of people. They were those who have been, um, have been joined to God in a loving, intimate, covenantal way the elect right so that is where this this is where in that passage the greek can be helpful to know that there is a way that it can be understood as generally knowing ahead of time but if you know that there is a definition determined by the context that can be it can be understood in an intimate knowledge right um and this is the same type of knowing that you see in Genesis when Adam knew his wife. We don't read that passage and think, oh, Adam knew his wife. He just stumbled upon some general knowledge of his wife. No, he knows his wife. He knew his wife in a very intimate way, in the most intimate way. This is the same idea. I'm giving you another word. Praorizo. This is the word for what? Romans 8. Pre, right, predestination. Um, it's made up as a compound word made up of the Greek preposition, again, pro, meaning beforehand, and horizo, meaning to determine or ordain. So 
basically these words, this word certainly means exactly what you think it says at first glance. You are being given a destiny ahead of time. So when you read Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30, it's very, you have to do, have you seen Matrix, you know, Neo, he's like dodging these bullets, like getting, like you have to do that to avoid what Paul is quite explicitly saying in this passage. You have to do scriptural uh, contortionism to get away from what Paul is literally saying. You are foreknown and given a destiny ahead of time. So, the big question, the unpleasant question, why has God foreknown and predestined some and not all unto salvation? Why didn't he just foreknow and predestine everybody to be saved? There is an answer. We have been given an answer explicitly in Scripture. For his glory. But to be more precise, let's take a look at Ephesians. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So yes, why did he predestine and foreknow and elect some as opposed, as opposed to doing it to everyone? Uh, because that's what his purpose and will was. And through doing so, he will receive praise and glory. He, God has hidden, mysterious, hidden purposes that we aren't told about. There could be more purpose behind this. But it's none of our business because he didn't tell us. And maybe he will someday in eternity. I don't know. But I know, I do know one thing. When I look at my heart and my mind, I know that there's nothing in me which would cause God to choose me. I know that. Every reason for God not to choose me. But for some reason he did. And the only reason that we've been giving, given is because it will glorify him. He will receive praise from it. And it is according to his purpose and will. That is quite insufficient for most people. But being that that's the only thing we've been given, it should be sufficient for us. 
Now, before I go any further, anybody have anything to say, add, question, objection? Yeah, it does leave us with more questions, and it is a better and explicit answer than what Arminianism, Arminianism will propose, for sure. It's not an easy pill to swallow. It is a jagged pill. Romans 8, 29 and 30. So, at this point, we are proposing that this is all of God. And that God has chosen some people. It is his purpose, his desire to only save some. And you might say, well, what about 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4? This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You might ask, well, what about 2 Peter 3, 9? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Or you might say, well, what about Ezekiel 18.23? Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his evil way and live? say that so if you did say that what you have here is a number of massive contradictions in scripture right i mean at face value that's what it looks like somebody will bring these that if you are reformed if you hold this perspective on salvation you will hear these verses thrown at you over and over and either there is a lot of contradiction or you're just wildly misinterpreting Scripture, which we walked through the words, we looked at the Greek, we, we can defend the position, right? Uh, but it could be, however, that these handful of verses that you will hear in opposition to this when standing next to the rest of scripture i mean it it doesn't the the weight is not even you have all of scripture talking about the sovereignty of god how how he knows what he knows what he is in control of what he does 
who's doing what in salvation. And you take all of those, and then you hold up a few verses over here saying, well, what about these? It could just be that these few verses over here aren't being interpreted correctly instead of all of the rest of Scripture being misinterpreted. That could be the case. That would be most likely, especially in light of verses like Psalm 135.6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Whatever pleases him, he does it. If it pleases God to save everybody, he does it. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Job declares, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job 42.11 And Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he, God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Except for when the sovereignty of man says to God, no. God says, I want to save you. I'm going to save everybody. I want to send Jesus to die for everybody. And the sovereign free will of man says, no. You shan't save me. Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 23. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath 
and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. There's a lot of things to there's a lot of things to note. In this, first of all. God has a purpose in election. It's his purpose. He elects according to his purposes, not according to the free will decisions of man. He chose before Esau and Jacob were even born and had done anything good or bad. He said, I will put my love on Jacob and I will hate Esau. Well, that that doesn't sound very fair. That doesn't sound very just. Yes. What would be fair? What we don't want is fairness. The word fair means according to the law or rules. If we got what was fair, we would all be in hell right now. Because all of us have have transgressed the law of God. That's fair. What we want is grace. So is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. Um, and then also, it, 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 I, I don't, I don't, it's so explicit. It baffles me how people can just walk right through this and, and come up with something different. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Uh, and he does this to whoever he will. He wills. He extends mercy to wh- whoever he wants to extend mercy. And he hardens whoever he wants to harden. Okay, so then why does God still find fault if nobody can resist his will? Why? That's not fair. That's not just. Why does he still find fault? This is a real question that Paul is, is, is facing. The objector in Romans all throughout the book, they're not imaginary people. He stood in the synagogues. He stood in the Greek circles with philosophers and given the, the gospel of Christ and has to, to, uh, to hear these actual objections. And you might encounter some of them too. That's not fair. That doesn't sound like a just God. Why does he still find fault? Paul's answer is not very palatable. Who do you think you are to talk back to God, tell him what is fair and what's not? Who do you think you are to answer back to God? And then he uses analogy of clay, God as the potter, He's forming things out of clay. It's his clay. He's the potter. Pots don't get formed and go, why did you make me this way? And 
And it's God's prerogative to make one vessel, one pot, for honorable use and one for dishonorable use. He's the potter. They're his pots. And what if he does it simply to make known his power? Why, why and how did Pharaoh get raised up in history as the greatest man on the planet? God raised him up for the very purpose of displaying his own power by crushing him, by burying him and all of his men in the Red Sea. That's why Pharaoh was raised up, to proclaim the greatness of God. And he raises up some vessels purely by grace alone, like us, for honorable use, to make known the riches of his glory. Any objections? Any comments, questions? You'll, you'll see lots of people. Try to explain this away. They will rip it out of the context and kind of twist it around a little bit, cherry pick some verses over here, throw them in there and make up something new. But if you follow Paul's flow of thought from Romans 1 all the way through, you can't just, this isn't some disjointed section of scripture that Paul is just kind of throwing in there. It's it's all it's all working together. So, salvation belongs to the Lord. Just a little quick review. God is doing everything in salvation. God provides a sacrifice. Romans 3.25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We didn't provide a sacrifice for ourselves. God calls to salvation. Romans 8.29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. God draws one to himself. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. John sixteen, eight and 9. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. God is the one who grants repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. God also gives Believing faith, Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, 
you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Romans four twenty five to five one, God justifies the believer. Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit regenerates. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. God will also resurrect us. John 6, 44 again. And I will raise him up on the last day. God will eventually, finally, he will glorify us. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Uh, Are we going to stop on time? Well, is there any questions first? Comments? a bunch today so what so what justin how should this impact us yes how should it impact us oh i'm asking the questions i'm just kidding um for one this should impact us in such a way that um seeing that all of this is by grace and all of this is done by God. It should make us very gracious toward others. Knowledge, knowledge, wisdom, understanding all come from God. They don't come from within ourselves or experience. God grants knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And if we see these things as truth in Scripture, um, it's not because we are smarter than Arminians. It's not because we're better than them in some way or wiser. It's because God has granted us to see these truths in Scripture. And that should humble us. And it should cause us to be more gracious to other people who don't necessarily agree. Uh, I know we have been the object of scorn from a church because we hold these positions. Um, And I hope that will never be true for anybody here who comes to this church, they would feel like an outcast or mistreated or um, belittled in, in any way for disagreeing at certain points. Obviously, there are lines to be drawn. Um, but to answer your question, it should humble us and cause us to be much more gracious. All right, we'll pick up uh, next week with conversion and Lord willing, we will finish lesson six next week. So let's pray. Thank you, God, uh, for saving us. We thank you for your plan of redemption. 
So thank you for initiating your plan of salvation when we were your enemies. When we were dead in our trespasses and sin. For your purposes, for your glory, you saved. You saved us. We ask, Father, that you would continue to save people. That you would use us to proclaim your gospel so that they will hear it and that you would call them and save them. Lord, help us to be humble and gracious as we proclaim your gospel, knowing that it is totally of grace that we have been saved. We ask, Lord, that you would bless the rest of the time this morning in worship and that you would uh, bless Aaron as he preaches. Give us all hearts that are pliable to be conformed to your word. Help us to love your word. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.